Hello, and welcome to the Providence College Podcast. I'm your host, Liz Kay, and I'm joined by producer Chris Judge of the class of 2005. Here at the Providence College Podcast, we bring you interesting stories from the Fryer family. We're recording on Thursday, December 10th, and this week we've heard some good news. The U.S. might administer its first COVID vaccinations within a few days. However, surveys show that two out of every three Americans is willing to be vaccinated for the coronavirus, up from 50% in September. That's why we're talking with Dr. Alexandria Capel, a postdoctoral researcher in PC's Department of Psychology. Dr. Capel studied cognitive psychology and cognitive neuroscience at the University of Michigan, and her research is on misinformation correction, that is, studying people who have false beliefs and how to change their minds. She specifically studied people who hesitate to get their children vaccinated due to the incorrect belief that they might cause autism. Dr. Capel, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Thank you for having me. Can we start um, with a little background on like the history of vaccine hesitancy? Did it start, you know, in recent times or to start up a lot longer? So that's a great question. And I think what a lot of people mistakenly believe is that vaccine hesitancy is something that's very recent or very novel. And while we may be seeing, uh, I guess, a rise in kind of uh, how much information we're getting about vaccine hesitancy, this is nothing new. Uh, So for example, back in the 1800s with the emergence of smallpox and later the vaccine for smallpox, um, what individuals ended up doing as these smallpox vaccine mandates uh, kind of started becoming the norm was that they showed a little hesitancy. And it actually led to the formation of um, the Anti-Vaccination Society of America. And so this is something that started well, you know, uh, well established long ago. Um, And then we also saw kind of another um, uh, rise in anti-vaccine attitudes in the 80s with uh, some documentaries that promoted uh, this kind of false narrative regarding the diphtheria uh, tetanus pertussis vaccine. Um, And then, of course, uh, most recently with the MMR, the measles, mumps and rubella vaccine. So we have seen some cases of vaccine hesitancy before, but I certainly think there has been uh, kind of a rise or an uptick uh, as of late. And so what are some of the common reasons that people will cite for not wanting to vaccinate their children or themselves? Yeah, so um, this is probably like the number one question that gets asked. So, you know, why do individuals avoid or why may they display some sort of vaccine hesitancy? Um, And there's no one set reason why individuals uh, may choose to avoid um, receiving a vaccination. Some of these reasons uh, could be say for religious beliefs. Maybe some individuals view this idea of putting a a foreign um, body kind of like in their, you know, in their system, uh, or they may view it as being unnatural. uh, social norms, so how society is uh, accepting and their outlook on the acceptance of these vaccines, um, perceived risk of the vaccine preventable disease itself. Uh, and we see that, of course, uh, our nation currently has a huge divide in what we're seeing regarding COVID um, infection rates and, of course, COVID mortality. And so Uh, there's a number uh, of reasons why individuals may choose not to vaccinate. Um, And some of it also stems just from 
uh, a fear of the unknown. So a lot of what we're hearing about um, these vaccines, um, they're very novel, you know, um, and uh, the speed at which they have been produced is something that um, it's usually takes a little bit longer, but given, of course, the the uh, serious nature of the health crisis, it's important to get it out quickly. But a lot of individuals may have a fear about the safety or the efficacy of such novel treatments. And so that's also something that has to be taken into account when considering vaccine hesitancy. And so when we talk about misinformation related to vaccines. Um, what are some of the common sources? You mentioned some of the documentaries earlier. What are other places where people are getting some of this misinformation? Yeah, so um, misinformation can spread through a number of ways. And it's important to distinguish misinformation from disinformation. So we're also hearing an emergence of this term disinformation, which is more so an intentional misleading of um, uh, false information. So uh, an intentional promotion of false information, whereas the spread of misinformation itself could be you know, accidental. Um, and oftentimes we can see this, for example, in the news. So if we've ever come across a news article that has later been retracted because something has been updated, um, that could be an accidental piece of original misinformation that we later have adjusted. Um, but a lot of what we see, I think, regarding um, why it is that individuals may avoid vaccines comes from anecdotal experiences. So when we talk about uh, the anecdotal experience, uh, especially uh, as it relates to say the MMR vaccine, um, so this is probably, I say, what we have the most information on. So a lot of times individuals will cite um, a personal experience or maybe the experience of someone that they know, um, and they'll incorrectly attribute, uh, say, a diagnosis of autism with a correlation to a vaccine. And unfortunately, this weight that individuals place on anecdotal experiences oftentimes uh, will overshadow statistical information because a lot of times it's easier for us to identify with uh, an individual person than a statistically average individual. Right. So like we can hear all these numbers thrown at us, but the story of your neighbor down the street and their cousin or you know, their cousin's kid, you know, that that sort of supersedes the idea in your mind in a way. Absolutely. Yeah, it sometimes can, definitely. Um, and I think that's a lot of uh, what my research tries to combat. So what specifically is it about misinformation that individuals are latching on to? And how, given you know their beliefs and their attitudes, how then can we alter some of those uh, beliefs and attitudes if they're embedded in misinformation. So tell us how you got interested in this topic. What drew you to this kind of research? Um, you know, I've always, uh, <laughs> I think I've always been interested in, you know, what drives people to believe what they believe. Um, I've always been fascinated in, uh, for example, we're hearing uh, a lot about conspiracy theorists thinking now uh, and that's always been something that has, you know, been of interest to me. So it's like, well, why or how is it that individuals, um, you know, without supporting evidence to a certain degree, can have such a rigid belief in uh, in something? 
And we, we saw this emergence um, with uh, measles outbreaks um, across the country. And it was attributed to this notion of vaccine hesitancy or the uh, avoidance of vaccines. And a lot of the same kind of uh, reasoning. Uh, so a lot of what motivates individuals to, you know, follow into this sort of behavioral pattern. Um, I think there were some similarities there. Uh, and I've just always been fascinated with that. And it's, we, I think our society has reached such kind of a uh, pivotal point in which misinformation is everywhere as far as the topic. Um, you know, anytime you turn on any sort of news media outlet, there's something about, well, fake news or misinformation or alternative facts. These are different terms that all refer to the same thing. And we really need to ask ourselves, well, what is driving this? And more importantly, how can it be combated? I'm curious about some of the sources of information and are some of them easier to debunk? Like, is it easier to convince somebody that they're wrong or, or convince them of the truth if, um, you know, it's an anecdote versus a media report or a government official or something along those lines? Um, I honestly think that depends. So it depends a lot on the individual. Um, it depends on uh, the source of the information and how much weight the individual puts into that source. Um, so for example, um, if we look at say uh, the healthcare system. Um, so one of the things that research has shown us time and time again is that there are uh, racial disparities in our healthcare system. And so what one individual may perceive as being, um, this, is, this is safe, this is effective, this is a valid, uh, recommendation, another individual may have a, a hesitancy or a mistrust based in that. So it really kind of depends on the individual as well as their perception of who it is that is relaying this information to them. So some, uh, certainly some things are easier, I guess, to debunk than others, um, but a lot of it is going to be very individualistic. So I'm curious through your research, what were some approaches that you found worked to help correct misinformation and, and those kinds of ideas? Uh, yeah. So um, specifically, we wanted to know how we can alter individual attitudes uh, surrounding the MMR vaccine. Um, so first, we wanted to know, well, where do individuals lie on their baseline ratings of pro versus anti-vaccine? Where are they at kind of along that spectrum? Uh, and then we... Uh, following kind of what previous researchers have done, um, individuals were randomized into one of three conditions. Uh, one condition being uh, what we called an autism correction, in which individuals are simply told, you know, um, here's all the science about how there is no link or causal factor for MMR vaccine and autism. Um, here are some potential reasons why you may think that exists. So we go into talking about Andrew Wakefield's um, 1998 retracted paper in The Lancet. Uh, we talk about the temporal aspect between the onset of autism symptoms and roughly the time frame in which children are being vaccinated. Um, and then 
individuals could also be randomized into a second condition, which uh, we refer to as our disease risk condition. Um, and in this condition, rather than saying, you know, vaccines don't cause autism, what we argue is that if you believe vaccines cause autism, here are the diseases that your child is at risk for. Um, so these individuals were presented with a warning that if you don't vaccinate your child, they're at risk for these potentially fatal diseases. They're also presented with an anecdotal story of a mother whose child contracted uh, measles. And then they're presented with pictures of children with measles, mumps, and rubella, respectively. Um, and then the last condition is just a control condition. And what we see is that when we're altering overall baseline vaccine attitudes, the most effective approach is that disease risk condition. This notion of, okay, if you choose not to vaccinate your children, let's talk about what they're at risk for. And I think that's a lot of what we're seeing currently with um, some of the COVID vaccine hesitancy. Uh, it's kind of like you have to essentially weigh your cost and benefits. Uh, and some individuals may say, well, we don't know enough about the research. And um, currently there's no you know, peer reviewed published uh, information regarding these vaccines, though the companies are giving us updates. Um, and I think somewhere along that line, if individuals could have some sort of, I guess, maybe a reassurance of uh, how this process works and what exactly uh, happens when individuals receive a vaccine, that may kind of curb some of that hesitancy that we see. But as far as uh, some of the more established vaccines that we are aware of, um, definitely it's all about framing it toward the individual. So if they believe that vaccines cause autism, if you avoid to vaccinate your child, let's talk about what they're at risk for. And I think that kind of highlights what is at the bottom of all of this, right? Is that the people who are making these choices for their children are trying to protect their children. Absolutely. That is the, the number one thing that we have to keep in mind. Uh, so individuals who avoid, uh, especially as it relates to the MMR vaccine, these are parents who are just trying to protect their children. So we need to figure out what is the effective way to communicate the safety and efficacy of these vaccines. And the danger that they're at risk of, as you said, right? You know, that they absolutely it's one thing to fear autism, but all of the serious risks that encountered with measles or whooping cough or any of these other things. Mm -hmm. I do think um, as new vaccines get introduced, there's a little bit of that's not the way I did it when I was a kid. I think there are lots of people my age and older who had childhood chickenpox, for example, survived it and were fine. Um, and we never really hear much about the kids who get hospitalized with chicken pox, but I think it happens. Um, mm -hmm. I think I've heard mm -hmm. a statistic, 200 kids a year, which that's 200 kids we could keep out of a hospital, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think all of us who have had chicken pox could, would have appreciated not having those scars. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So maybe there's a little, we can use vanity to, uh, encourage people to, to take them up on it. <laughs> if you encounter someone in a casual conversation, you know, you're at the school pickup line and people share ideas that are, that you believe are, are, that you know are rooted in misinformation. Do you have advice for someone like that? I think that is sort of the, the mantra of 2020. We've had a lot of uncomfortable conversations. Um, 
and some of them that have escalated into fights. And so I'm asking you as a researcher, if you have advice for all of us who are kind of struggling with interpersonal relationships um, surrounding misinformation. That, that's always a, a heavy question, right? And to be honest, it's the question I get proposed most frequently. Um, it's always, well, you know, I, I have a parent or an in-law or a relative and they have opposing views rooted in misinformation. What do I do? Um, and to a certain degree, uh, I want to say that you have to be mindful of how you approach your argument. Um, so one of the things that we know about any sort of direct opposition is that it does have the potential to result in a backfire effect. So for example, if someone believes that vaccines cause autism, simply saying, well, no, vaccines don't cause autism, here's all the research on it, they can simply say, well, no, you're wrong, this is you know, fake science, where are you getting this from? They can question your sources um, and they can question the accuracy of what they're seeing. So then you kind of have to uh, change your framing. And so that's what we would um, argue is a backfire effect that we kind of have to look out for. It's the strengthening of an opposing opinion uh, or the strength of that opinion in the presence of opposing information. Um, and so it's it's hard, and I don't think I have you know one solid answer. I, and I know um, <laughs> whenever I tell individuals, you know, they're always just like, "Yeah, it's it's really difficult," um, because you also have to keep in mind um, an individual's rigidity in their beliefs, uh, and also if they have any sort of amount of uh, belief superiority, which is this notion that my beliefs are superior simply because they are my own. And if you encounter individuals who hold beliefs rooted in misinformation, who also have high levels of belief superiority, how then can you combat that with scientific factual evidence? Uh, and that's honestly what my research continues to kind of look at, um, because what we see in the misinformation correction literature is that it's hard. It is hard to alter individual attitudes. And what we have found to be effective is sometimes not effective in other cases. So it really kind of depends. But one thing we can say for certain is that that direct opposition um, usually is not the best approach in some aspects. But I think there's still some room for growth as far as uh, what we can do to improve. I think what you said about everything, you know, people's beliefs being rooted in ultimately wanting to protect their kids. It's something that we could all rally around and protect. If we all work to protect each other as well, that could help. Help us all move to a, a good place. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think actually uh, what some individuals have stopped doing instead of calling it herd immunity, I think they've like a change. So I'm like going way off like informal topic, but I think they've changed it to a different type of uh, immunity. So it doesn't sound so much like cattle because apparently that phrasing also makes individuals kind of like hesitant to, you know, go forth with it, which I'm just like, that's it baffles. I'm trying, I, I, I feel like I know that it's on the tip of my tongue, the word that they're using in. Yeah. It's because it's like right there, but it's, <laughs> that that is another psychological phenomenon or, or neuroscience phenomenon where you can remember a word but you can't actually spit it out. Um, Tip of the tongue. 
So Dr. Keeple, you are a postdoc, a postdoctoral researcher at PC. Can you tell us about that experience um, and your work? So are you teaching classes right now to undergrads? What, what are you, what are your, what's your day-to-day like? Absolutely. So uh, I am currently wrapping up uh, a semester of teaching a couple of sections of intro to psychology. Um, I'm very fortunate uh, that you know, PCA gave us the opportunity to uh, teach remotely. So I have been teaching uh, asynchronous remote lectures. Um, and um, it has been an adjustment for us all. And I don't think I could be any more proud of my students for getting through such uh, a just what could sometimes be a chaotic semester. And they're here, they did it. Um, and I'm so proud of them. And um, what I did previously, um, I actually taught um, research design statistical analysis, uh, which is the RDSA one and two component, which is a very big foundational course um, for the psychology curriculum. Um, So I have been teaching and um, when I'm not teaching, I'm actually working on uh, a couple of follow-ups to my vaccine uh, research. I'm actually wanting to explore more about the um, racial inequities, or I guess the racial disparities in vaccine hesitancy. Um, I want to do something also that involves um, more of the uh, Rhode Island community, especially currently as we stand at the number one, uh, I think, state with the most cases per 100,000 per capita. And so it'd be interesting to know, well, what is going on as far as um, the vaccine hesitancy in a place such as Rhode Island, where we currently stand. And so that's kind of where I want to take my my future research uh, when I'm not teaching. And what about in the lab? Are you able this semester to work with, you know, professors and, and undergrads here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, As far as uh, my individual work, uh, COVID has put a little bit of a pause on that. I have been doing some collab work uh, with uh, uh, other professors in the department. Um, So for example, I'm doing a a project with Dr. Kelly Warmoth, who is a developmental psychologist in our our department. Um, And we are in the middle of writing up a manuscript on uh, differences in presentation styles. Um, And so hopefully we'll be able to uh, get that written up and uh, submitted somewhere. Does your research offer any insights on individualism and whether a person's belief in how they consider themselves in the, as a part of a society, it was sort of triggered by your question or your mentioning about that herd immunity question. Um, I wonder, I feel like when I look at the surveys, people who feel that they are at greatest risk of a serious case of COVID are more interested in getting the vaccine. How much, if I, I'm wondering if in your research, if you were able to determine whether someone's belief in the benefit to society um, came into play when it came to their personal decisions for them or themselves to have their, they or their children to be vaccinated. So that is actually, um, as far as my work with the MMR vaccine and uh, 
individual attitudes on that. We do ask about this notion of protecting your child. So there is one question that essentially states, um, rate, whether you agree or disagree, I don't have to protect my child because other individuals have been vaccinated. And it kind of gets at this notion of what you're asking about, which is when do we separate this individualism for the collective good? Um, And I think with COVID, that's something that you automatically kind of have to do. Um, And just giving the nature of this virus, giving um, the high rate of infection that goes along with it, how easy it is to transmit to others unknowingly. I think here the collective good kind of has to trump the individual um, maybe hesitancies that they may display. And the reason being is because um, one of the things that we we kind of keep seeing and reading over and over with some of these uh, surveys and some of these studies that have been coming out is that a certain percentage of the society, you know, will ultimately need to receive this vaccine in order for this to, you know, kind of be effective um, in order for our COVID cases to kind of curb. And especially considering that, you know, if we look at how individuals have been responding thus far, you know, looking at mask mandates, we, you know, wear a mask, we have seen some pushback regarding a violation of freedom. And that actually kind of reminds me of what we have seen historically with vaccine hesitancy, this notion of you're violating my individual freedom. And I think we have reached such a pivotal point in our society and especially as it relates to the pandemic, the pandemic has really allowed us to see where are the, the gaps in our society that still need to be filled. Where are our shortcomings uh, as a country? And so ultimately right now we're seeing that and we really need to be putting the greater good of that community um, ahead of the individual because that's ultimately, I believe, the only way that we're going to be able to combat this thing. Dr. Capo, what do you think could be at the heart of these concerns with vaccines? Because it doesn't seem to be restricted to just vaccines. Absolutely. I actually, um, you know, one of the things that uh, a separate thing that I looked at was actually a study of GMO perception. So in my dissertation, I looked at perception of an MMR vaccine, but also how might individuals perceive GMOs, something that, you know, some individuals would also say is unnatural, is foreign, that shouldn't be in the body. And the results about how to alter attitudes is vastly different if it's a novel concept. So that does give me some sort of hope that the less individuals know about something, the more that you can kind of like alter that attitude as more information becomes readily available. Are you saying that it's easier to correct misinformation because they just don't have a lot of um, information to begin with? Absolutely. So um, in a study that I conducted uh, a couple of years back, we took essentially the same kind of um, research setup that we did. So the same methodology as our vaccine 
attitude study. And we just changed the concept to be GMOs. So essentially, you know, figuring out what people know about GMOs, figuring out if they avoid using GMOs, if they purely shop organic, uh, if they read can labels, things of that nature. And on overall, what you see is that roughly people are at about like a median zone with their knowledge of GMOs as far as being pro or anti. They're kind of in the middle. Um, but what we see is that if you present to them uh, different uh, information about GMOs, so the prevalence of GMOs, what they may have consumed that has GMOs. So for example, soy products, I believe 90 plus percentage of uh, soy products genetically modified. And it's like, okay, so let's talk about um, the novelty of, well, why was it so easy to alter an attitude for this, but not something else? And of course, there are different aspects that you could, you know, uh, tackle, which is like one is food versus an injection. Um, so there are like a number of different things, but I think it's, it's worth considering a novel component um, as kind of maybe a, a moderator of an individual attitude for their hesitancy. Well, Dr. Capel, thank you so much. This was a fascinating conversation and I really appreciated getting to chat with you about this. Oh, thank you for having me. Subscribe to the Providence College podcast in all the usual places, including Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please review and share with others. Thanks for listening and go Friars.